Behold, the new has come. You're a new creation if you're in Christ. But also, it's not, it's not just that Jesus saves people and gives them a get-out-of-hell-free card. He goes, he goes beyond that. He changes you. He begins to sanctify you. He begins to cleanse you. We become what we, declare, what we are declared to be. And isn't that what Titus 2 was talking about? The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Next verse, training us to renounce ungodly passions. So, the grace of God has appeared in the gospel, in Jesus. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. Your sins are forgiven. You have a relationship with God, but it's more than that. That same grace that saves you also sanctifies you. That's his whole point. You never leave the gospel for something else to get changed. Now you stay with the gospel. The same grace that saves you also sanctifies you. People are corrupted by sin. And the divine remedy is the gospel. Is Jesus coming in the flesh to condemn sin in the flesh. People are corrupted by sin. But also, it's not just people. So, Everything I've said in the last five minutes, you already know. Here's something a little different. It's not just people. Governments are corrupted by sin. Governments are corrupted by sin. There's a quote by Cornelius Plantinga. He's a theologian. Uh, it's on your, your sheet. He says this. It's in this book, actually. It's a whole book on sin. It's called uh, Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, A Brevery on Sin. Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. His first chapter says that sin is the vandalism of shalom. It's the vandalism of peace. That's what sin is. And so he says this, Sin burrows into the bowels of institutions and traditions, making a home there and taking them over. Sin burrows into the bowels of institutions and traditions. This is why Solomon says, In the place of justice... There was wickedness. He's not just talking about individuals. He's talking about a system. He's talking about a government. Now, we, we have, as Christians, we have a theology of government. We have a way of viewing the government. So Romans 13 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoing. Now that passage is massively important because it keeps us in two extremes. The first extreme is that government is everything. That's wrong. The other extreme is government is nothing. Equally wrong. To those who say government is nothing, 
Jesus says, render to Caesar what is Caesar's. And to the people who say, no, 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 government is everything. Jesus says, render to God what is God's. Christians have a theology of government. Christians appreciate and support the God-given role of government. We hold, a, we hold government accountable to God's standard of justice. Read Rome 13. It's been instituted by God. That does not mean it's perfect. does not mean it's sinless. But it does mean it's been instituted by God. Yet, we know, as does Solomon, that in the place of where there should be justice, so often, too often, there's wickedness. Meaning, Christians, as new creations, we pursue governmental reform and renovation when appropriate. Again, we, we don't need to land on government is everything or government is nothing. We can pursue governmental reform and renovation when appropriate. Example, abortion. Christians care about abortion. Now, here's the thing. Outlawing abortion will not get rid of abortion. But it will make it illegal. We hold the government accountable to God's standard of justice. And by that we mean government is supposed to be for the good of the people. Abortion. But also underfunding of public schools. I think Christians are, are allowed to be concerned about the education their kids are getting. They're allowed to participate in parent-teacher conferences to care about schooling. Why? Because we seek governmental reform when appropriate. Why? Because we understand that sin causes corruption, and not just in people, but also in governments. Sin causes corruption. But also, sin causes death. Sin causes death. Take a look with me in chapter 3. Look at verses 18 through 22. Verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to the dust all return. And who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Sin causes death. Remind in the garden, God says to Adam and Eve, don't eat the fruit. He says, look, you can eat any, any tree in the garden except that one. For the day that you eat it, you will surely die. They ate the fruit, and they, they don't die immediately, but eventually they die. Everyone dies. See, that there are two types of death. There's physical death. Physical death, which we all will experience. 
you know, the pastor preached a sermon a few, few uh, months ago. Remember this? He said, every time you wake up and your knee hurts, that's death. It's tapping you on the shoulder. I like that. I can't get away with saying that kind of stuff. Physical death. Everyone died. But here's the thing. Everybody's going to die. But not everybody lives. Everybody dies physically. But not everybody lives spiritually. Because there was a second type of death. A more tragic death. A more eternal death. Spiritual death. So if physical death is everyone dies, spiritual death is everyone is dead. Born dead. Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world. Following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Everybody comes out spiritually dead. That next verse in Ephesians is excellent. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. Spiritual death, everyone is dead. And yet, what the gospel is about is bringing dead people to life. The same way Jesus says to the tomb, Lazarus, come out. He cries in our soul, come out. And just as, just as it says, and the one who was dead came out. The same is true for believers have you ever stopped to consider the, the connection between the virgin birth and your conversion? It's connected. Both are miraculous births. The virgin birth is a miraculous birth. Your conversion is a miraculous new birth. One is from an empty womb, and the other is because of an empty tomb. Spiritual death. Sin causes death. But praise God, the gospel causes life. Death. One more. Sin causes corruption. Sin causes death. Here's the last one. Sin causes oppression. Sin causes oppression. Take a look with me in chapter 4. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. See the oppression. Here's Solomon. Verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed. And they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. And there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Here's Solomon, 
writing a dissertation on life. And he can't help but see the tears of the oppressed. And, and we're, we're not too far removed in our country of the tears of the oppressed. You go fast forward a little more in history, with the Holocaust, you see the tears of the oppressed. In almost every age, you see the tears of the oppressed. And Solomon feels it. And he hates it. And he says there's no comfort. That's what gets him. There's no comfort for the oppressed. When you deal with something that is difficult, persecution, hardship, cancer, what you want is comfort. And Solomon is surveying the landscape, everything that is under the sun. And he says there is no one, no thing to comfort them. And it breaks him. Solomon sees that sin is at work when people in positions of power, people who can help, use their power to either extort or ignore those who are not in power. That's what he says. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. They were able to help. And there was no one to comfort them. That is until one who was above the sun descended down below the sun. You see, Christ is called the great comforter. Christ is the Prince of Peace. Christ is the King of Shalom. He is the one who comforts people in their greatest need. You know, Christians have a theology of compassion. I'm thinking about this for a little bit. You know, I write articles for the church, and I thought it'd be a good article to write. What, what does it mean to have a theology of compassion? How do we think about compassion? I think it begins with Jesus. So internally, Christ, the compassionate one, dwells in us. So the, the same Christ who in Matthew 9, verse 36, Jesus, seeing the crowds, had compassion. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and they were helpless. They were like sheep without a shepherd. If you're in Christ... The compassionate one dwells in you. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified in Christ. It is no longer I who live, but who lives in me? Christ, the compassionate one. Internally, Christ, the compassionate one, dwells in us. Which makes a whole lot of sense of Colossians 3.12. Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Why? Because verse 1 of Colossians 3 says you've been raised with Christ. And Christ is now your life. See, compassion has to begin with what the Odins call our union with Christ. What that means is Christ is in you. And you are in him. In such a way that whatever he feels, we are supposed to feel. The same Christ who saw that his friend Lazarus had died, he saw Mary weeping, 
He saw Martha weeping. So all the people weeping, what did he do? He wept. And then and what does Paul tell us to do? Weep with those who weep. I don't think he's making that up. I think he's just reflecting on Jesus, the one who wept with those who wept. That's, that's, the, that's the starting point of a theology of compassion. Because we've been raised with Christ, and Christ is in us, the Christ, the compassionate one, he's in us. But then externally, people are still harassed and helpless. So internally, Christ dwells in us, but then externally, people are still harassed and helpless. What's interesting about Solomon, he says this, I, I saw, I saw the oppressions. I saw the tears of the oppressed. My question is simple. Do you see it? Do you see the people in need in your life, in your family, at your job, in your neighborhood? Do you see the tears of the oppressed? Do you see what Solomon sees? Jesus seeing the crowds. He saw them. He had compassion. There's something about seeing Something about being there. That's why I love Operation Charlotte. Because you're there. You're with people. You, you see the hurt. You see the pain. Externally, people are still harassed and helpless. Physically and spiritually. And as Christians, we care about both. Theology of compassion. Again, that's why I love Operation Charlotte. We meet spiritual needs, and we meet physical needs. Clothes closet, food pantry. We have an implicit theology of compassion. Internally, Christ, the compassionate one, dwells in me. I can't help but feel compassion. By the way, the word compassion in the Greek is the word spleen. That's what it means. It means you feel something in your gut. Compassion. So we've seen that there is no comfort for the oppressed. But then he switches gears a little bit in chapter 5, and he begins to talk about justice. It's one thing for there to be no comfort for the oppressed, but also he says, look, not only is there no comfort, there's also no justice. So take a look with me in chapter 5. Look with me in verse 8. Chapter 5, verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, get this, do not be amazed. Don't be shocked. Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Justice. I want to show you two, three things about justice. The first thing I want to show you is the inevitability of human injustice. The inevitability of human injustice. Look at verse 8 again. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor, which would shock us, you would think we should be appalled at it. The oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, don't be amazed. 
That's what he says. Why? Because we live in a world that has been hit, invaded with sin. We live in a post-Genesis 3 world. And every day, we're bombarded with verse 8. The oppression of the poor and the violation of justice. Don't be amazed, he says. Happens every day. It's just called Wednesday. The inevitability of human injustice. So, be appalled at it. Be outraged by it. Be upset with it. But don't be amazed. Don't be shocked. This is what happens when sin invades a good world that God created. The inevitability of human injustice. But, take a look at this. Take a look at the inevitability of divine justice. Divine justice. Look again at verse 8. I'll read again. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter because the high official is watched by a higher. And there are yet higher ones over them. In other words, keep, keep climbing. Eventually, you'll find God sitting on his throne. The highest official has a higher one. I love how Isaiah puts it. He says in chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It's obscured in the text. I'll read it again. He says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king. King Uzziah reigned for over 30 years. Relatively a good king. Had some bouts of pride, but relatively a good king. Most people growing up in that time, had never had any other king besides King Uzziah. And when he died, it was a massive, massive difference. King Uzziah is all we know. He's a good king. And here's Isaiah saying, no, 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 look, when, when a king of 30 years died, I looked a little bit past his throne. I saw another throne. A higher throne. A holier throne throne. I saw the king. He's saying kings come and go. Presidents come and go. Rulers come and go. But there is one king, one president, one lord who is always on his throne. There is a higher official. The inevitability of divine justice. Meaning every infraction, every infraction of injustice will be addressed by a divine judge. And, get this, in the court of God, God is judge, jury, and executioner. But praise God, he's also our advocate. 1 Timothy 2, 5, There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. He is also our advocate. He is our helper. Jesus is the one who came and lived and died and rose from the dead to advocate for us, to be a merciful and faithful high priest, to offer sins, offer atonement for our sins. 1 Timothy 2.5, he is our advocate. 
And praise God that he is both just and the justifier. Praise God the Father is the justifier. Praise God that the Son is the substitute. And praise God the Spirit is the witness. And if that is true, then that means there is an urgency to evangelism. If what I've just said is true, if every infraction of injustice has not gone unnoticed, has been tallied, and there will, be, there will be one day, a day of reckoning, if that is true, then it doesn't matter if you lived your life oppressor or oppressed. It doesn't quite matter. You're a sinner. There is an urgency to the gospel then. That's the third point. The urgency of the gospel. The gospel tells the oppressor that God will bring him into judgment unless he repents. That's the prophets, right? Unless you repent, a day of judgment is coming. The same is true today. God says to the oppressors, unless you repent, a day of reckoning is coming. But the gospel also speaks to the oppressed. And it says this, your oppression will only turn out for good if you love God. There is a way for you to waste your oppression. There is a way for you to waste your persecution. There is a way for you to waste the cancer, to waste the hardship, to waste everything difficult that has ever happened. There is a way to go through your entire life and waste it. How? By not believing in Christ. Because Romans 8, 28 we know that for those who love God, all things, the cancer, the relationships, the brokenness, the pain, all things, the oppression, the injustice, death, all things work together for good. Which means the only way to redeem your oppression is to believe in Christ. The only way that you can make sure you don't waste the suffering is to believe in Christ. Look, Romans 8.28 is not speaking to unbelievers. For those who love God, which assumes repentance. Because early Romans says, look, you were enemies of God, and you've now been brought near by the blood of His Son. Only those who love God will all things work out for good. Why? Because of Christ. The one who was oppressed for you. The one who took divine justice for you. The one who was born, lived, died, and resurrected. So what's wrong with the world? Sin. How can what is wrong be made right? Only through Christ. Hope you remember that today. Sin broke the world, but God sent Jesus to fix the world. Let's pray.
So Lord, we're grateful for our time together. We praise you that you are both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Thank you for Ecclesiastes. We thank you for how honest Solomon is. God, I pray that might be a model for us as we pray, as we live our lives in community, that we would be honest and transparent. God, I pray we would weep with those who would give us a theology of compassion. God, help us to, in both word and deed, care about people in difficult positions to care for the oppressed, to care for the poor, to proclaim the good news of the forgiveness of sins only available through Christ. Pray that in his name. Amen.